Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 Festival podcast, Holly McNish and Hera Lindsay Bird, Poetry Stars, proudly presented by Kate Sylvester. Join two of the world's shining stars of poetry, whose work and performances have attracted widespread attention in both popular and literary circles. Hera Lindsay Bird exploded onto New Zealand's poetry scene with her self-titled debut collection and has been travelling the world ever since. Holly McNish's funny and sincere poems about babies, sex and politics have attracted millions of views on YouTube while also winning accolades such as the Ted Hughes Award. They performed together in Edinburgh in 2017 to a sold-out crowd and we got to see this dynamic pairing down under. Welcome everybody. Um, my name is Kate Sylvester and I'm very proud today to present our poetry session with Hera Lindsay Bird and Holly McNeish. We'd like to thank um, Creative Scotland, the British Council and Victoria University. I first discovered Hera two years ago when her first perfect gem of a book came out. I'd heard talk about this poet chick from Wellington, but I actually really just picked the book up more as a curiosity than anything, and then found myself a few months later um, in the audience at an Aldous Harding rock gig, and I was excited about the support act as I was about the main act. And there was Hera standing on the stage, all on her own, no band, no drums or guitars or rock postures, just Hera and her words. And she just transfixed us. She charmed us, she puzzled us, and I was completely sold. Since then, she's, come, she's brought out another really beautiful book of poems, and she's been recognised all around the world, partly through her performance with Holly, previous performances. Um, I don't, I'm not, I wasn't as aware of Holly as I was of Hera, um, even though she's, she's certainly got more years and more books under her belt. But um, certainly for me, um, the, the poems that have real poignancy to me are Holly's parenthood um, poems from her book, Nobody Told Me. And there's a particular line about being a night walker, day worker, and Holly, I was thinking about that today. I'm exhausted, and <laughs> <laughs> the book is called Nobody Told Me, so... I'm here to tell you, as the mother of teenage sons, just when you think you've finally claimed your nights back, you'll discover, as I did last night, lying awake half the night, just waiting for them to bloody come home, I thought, I'm now a night warrior, day worker, so that you've got that ahead of you. So... <laughs> it's, it's personal words, but global reson resonance. And um, I believe that the world's out of kilter at the moment. 
there's, it's too fake, too much Trump, too many Kardashians. But we humans just have a wonderful way of throwing up antidotes. God damn, I just, I've said the right word, but every time when I've tried to figure that out in my head, I've been saying throwing up anecdotes. <laughs> and I actually thought that that's, there's something kind of lovely about that anyway, because basically our poets anecdotes are our antidotes. And that's what we're here. That's what we're here. That's what we're part of today. It's the glorious rise of the poet, especially women poets, reminding us of our raw, real, beautiful humanity just when we really need reminding. So now Hera will speak first. And then I'm really looking forward to discovering more of Holly's world as well. So thank you all for coming and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for coming today and thanks um, to Kate for introducing us and also for the fabulous dresses um, and dots that we've got on. <laughs> It's, it's a, honestly, it's such a good thing that um, you, you never get, um, I, I think that if I had the option to be kind of paid in clothing rather than money, I would take it every time. So thank God it's, it's not, it only happens very rarely. Um, and it's also really nice to be reading with Holly. We've kind of ended up doing this like weird informal tour where people just kind of keep putting us on the same bill. And, um, and we're reading again t together soon in Cheltenham. Um, and I've been told that there's really good food in the green room. So, um, yeah, this is, it's, kind of, it's kind of like a, a weird coincidence that keeps... I don't know if it's a coincidence, but we're, a, we're now a travelling act, so that's pretty sick. Um, I'm going to read some poems off my phone last night because I saw Omar Musa read last night and I got so excited I gave him my reading cop my copy of the books that I read from and then I was like, oh, I have to read some poems tomorrow. But it was worth it because he was so good. Um, and so hopefully my mother doesn't call me in the middle of this session. Um, the first one I'm going to read is from my new collection and apologies if you were at the thing last night. I might read a couple of the same ones, but... Um, <sighs> That's, uh, unfortunately, I'm not working with a lot. <laughs> um, this one's called Jealousy. Anytime someone I'm dating ever mentions someone they used to love in a semi-nostalgic or non-cynical way, I immediately want to drive my car headfirst into a swamp full of battery acid, ruining Christmas for everyone. It's so unreasonable to be afraid of so many sad and distant women who have escaped into the future only occasionally looking back through their naturally thick eyelashes. When I think about the possibility the person I'm currently with has ever been romantically interested in another person ever, I feel a great self-antagonism for being the kind of woman who came afterwards, like a bad sequel with a higher budget. <laughs> oh, I feel sorry for the people I love and where it is I'm taking them because I don't think I'm good enough. I think it's okay to admit the people you love are better than you. I wouldn't date anyone who wasn't. 
Imagine dating someone worse than yourself on purpose. That's the kind of fucked up thing only everyone I've ever loved would do. Um, and this next one is called, I am so in love with you, I'm going to lie down in the middle of a major public intersection and cry. <laughs> it's not how you're supposed to start love poems, but I'm too far gone to work up to it gently. Your naked back in the mirror has cured at least three to four major diseases. For you, I would set myself on fire in a smoke detector factory. For you, I would ride through the mall on a Segway, knocking juices out of the hands of thirsty real estate agents. Your lungs like Christmas stockings, waiting for Santa to climb down the chimney and put cancer in. Your face like the face of a dead French revolutionary in an outdated children's textbook. My stupid heart like a snow globe filled with blood. If you left me, I would be forced to gaze despairingly into the middle distance. If you left me, I would be forced to emotionally distance myself from the situation as a self-preservation technique until eventually I healed enough to be able to consider romantic relationships with other people, all the time secretly resenting you for failing to sustain your attraction to me, despite the totally involuntary and uncontrollable nature of human desire. Your teeth like a graveyard in springtime. Your tongue like a mattress in a graveyard in springtime. Your tongue on my cunt like a mattress in a graveyard in springtime. My pubic hair like the black carpet on the Titanic. My ass like an ass buffet. You put me in a friendly but uncompromising headlock. You bite me all over my neck and shoulders. I don't know how to write a love poem because love is indescribable. It's this feeling you get where your mind gets hot and everything else gets insignificant with diamonds on it and you have to laugh and laugh at things in your secondhand dress. The slow rising of your eyelid like a girl's skirt. My eyes like two envelopes stuffed with snow and no return address. My eyes like a pair of pale blue cowboy boots walking slowly down a city street towards you. It's like you've finally found someone who interests you and you get more and more interested like a fascinating disease. It's like for some reason you have to think of the Wild West all the time, but it doesn't make sense because you don't really care about the Wild West. It's better than TV to look at someone and feel so much happiness. Your smile a single arrow quivering in a tree trunk. It's like life is not a punishment and sometimes good things happen for no reason. I stare and stare at you like you were a distant mountain in a homeopathic video game with rare medicinal flowers on it. Um, this one is uh, called Monica and it's about Monica Geller from Friends. But it's not really about Monica Geller. Um, but it mainly is about Monica Geller. <laughs> Monica. 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 Monica Geller from popular sitcom Friends is one of the worst characters in the history of television. She makes me want to wash my eyes with hand sanitizer. 
She makes me want to stand in an abandoned Ukrainian parking lot and scream her name at a bunch of dead crows. Nobody liked her except for Chandler. He married her. And that brings me to my second point. What kind of a name for a show was Friends when two of them were related and the rest of them just fucked for 10 seasons? <laughs> Maybe their fucking was secondary to their friendship. Or they all had enough emotional equilibrium to be able to maintain a constant state of mutual respect despite the fucking or conspicuous non-fucking that was occurring in their lives. But I have to say, it just doesn't seem emotionally realistic, especially considering that they were not the most self-aware of people. And to be able to maintain a friendship through the various complications of heterosexual monogamy is enormously difficult, especially when you take into consideration what cunts they all were. I fell in love with a friend once, and we liked to congratulate each other on what good friends we were, and how it was great that we could be such good friends and still fuck until we stopped fucking, and then we weren't such good friends anymore. <laughs> I had a dream the other night about this friend, and how we were walking through sunlight many years ago, dragged up from the vaults like old military propaganda. You know the kind, young woman leaving a factory arm in arm while their fiancés are being handsomely shot to death in Prague. And even though this friend doesn't love me anymore, and I don't love them, at least not in a romantic sense, the memory of what it had been like not to want to strap concrete blocks to my head and drown myself in a public fountain rather than spend another day with them not talking to me came back. And I remember the world for a moment as it had been when we had just met and love seemed possible, and neither of us resented the other one. And it made me sad, not just because things ended badly, but because I just met someone new. And this dream reminded me that, although I believe there are ways that love can endure, it's just that statistically, or based on personal experience, it's unlikely things are going to go well for long, there is such a narrow window for happiness in this life, and if the past is anything to go by, everything is about to go slowly but inevitably wrong in a non-confrontational but ultimately disappointing way. Monica, Monica, Monica. Monica Geller from popular sitcom Friends was a favorite character of the Uber driver who drove me home the other day and is the main reason for this poem because I remember thinking, Monica, maybe he doesn't remember who she is. Because when I asked him specifically which character he liked friend, best off friends, he said the woman. And when I listed their names for him, Phoebe, Rachel, and Monica, he said Monica, but he said it with a kind of question mark at the end, like Monica, which led me to believe he didn't know what he was talking about and had got her confused with one of the other less objectively terrible characters. I think the driver meant to say Phoebe because Phoebe is everyone's favorite. She once stabbed a police officer. She once gave birth to her brother's triplets. She doesn't give a shit what anyone thinks about her. Monica gives a shit what everyone thinks about her. Monica's parents didn't treat her very well. And that's probably where a lot of her underlying insecurities that have since manifested themselves into controlling and manipulative behavior. It's not that I think Monica is unredeemable, 
I can recognize that her personality has been shaped by a desire to succeed, and that even when she did succeed, it was never enough, particularly for her mother, who made her feel like her dreams were stupid and a waste of time, and that kind of constant belittlement can do really fucked up things to a person, so maybe getting really upset when people don't use coasters is an understandable, or at least comparatively sane response to the psychic baggage of your parents never having believed in you. Often I look at the world and I am dumbfounded that anyone can function at all given the kinds of violence that so many people have inherited from the past. But that's still no excuse to throw a dinner plate at your friends during a quiet game of Pictionary. And even if that was an isolated incident and she was able to move on from it, it still doesn't make me want to watch her on TV. I am falling in love and I don't know what to do about it. Throw me in a haunted wheelbarrow and set me on fire and don't even get me started on Ross. <laughs> Um, I was reading that the other day, and I had this kind of amazing revelation halfway through the poem. I was like, oh. my, my father was a social worker, and he um, has an interest in kind of watching bad reality TV and diagnosing everyone on screen with kind of their various disorders. He, you know, we'll be watching an episode of Survivor, and he'll be like, oh, that's, uh, that's borderline, that's, that's, on, that's on the spectrum of the borderline. So I think maybe that's kind of where that poem came from. Um, this is, I'm going to read uh, something now which I haven't decided whether it's a poem or not, but um, in lieu of having a better name for it, I will call it Leonardo da Vinci fan fiction. And it is called The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> it was a hot summer morning 500 years ago in Italy, and Leonardo da Vinci was busy at work inventing the modern helicopter. True, he did. He stood in his workshop with the sun beating down on his various ancient-looking parchments and took a sip from a historically accurate beverage out of a historically accurate cup. Suddenly, a long-dead bird came flying into his workshop half a century ago. Leonardo da Vinci laughed anciently, like a great man from the past might. He went out onto his balcony and looked out all of the brick-coloured houses made by dead Italian people, stacked to the tits with frescoes and ivies and little brown dogs running everywhere and people carrying loaves of bread around in their arms like soft gluten purses, like vigilante mares of bread town. I love ancient Italy. It's my home, he thought, while simultaneously inventing a complicated water device with lots of intricate levers and screws that's too hard to explain to normal level intelligence people, but rest assured it was good. He leapt hugely off his balcony and went for a tall walk down the street, becoming constantly inspired by observing the world and all the momentous inventions he was going to do for it. If electricity had been invented, he might have waited for a traffic light, but he didn't have time to invent electricity today, or traffic either, or even to play the liar beautifully with his long homosexual fingers. He was late for the first day of the Italian Renaissance. When he got to the first day of the Italian Renaissance, Michelangelo and Botticelli and Italian Shakespeare were there, plus a lot of other famous dead guys listed on the Wikipedia page, and they had all taken the day off from their jobs, which was painting fucked up giant winged babies for art, and doing heaps of other famous as shit enlightened men things, like making up classical philosophies and growing massive beards out of chin modesty. 
I have invented the helicopter, Leonardo da Vinci shouted, striding into the official Renaissance headquarters, knocking several large tables over and absentmindedly punching a grandfather clock in its big ticking face before stopping all of time for a few minutes and then inventing time again, but even more accurate than the first time around. Damn, I love being an inventor, he said, and kissed several handsome young nearby men who all loved it, mouthwise. What's a helicopter? Michelangelo asked, like a little bitch. <laughs> Michelangelo was jealous because the only thing he ever invented was painting on ceilings, which is a dumb place to put art because you have to lie down to look at it and get the back of your head all dirty. But Leonardo laughed, because that was the kind of guy he was. The kind of guy who knew what helicopters were before they even existed. Before even the kinds of metals that could make them fly were dug out of the ground. But he wasn't laughing in a mean way, just in a joyful and ahead of his time kind of way. A helicopter is a machine for flying, he explained, and showed them his drawings, which were museum quality and rare looking. And Botticelli was like, what does a helicopter do? And Leonardo recounted the entire plot of Mission Impossible, which he also invented on the spot and did all the noises for, especially the part where Tom Cruise is climbing along the top of a moving train being shot at by a helicopter. And then he sees a train tunnel coming up. So he ties the helicopter to the train and the helicopter has to fly through the tunnel and Tom Cruise climbs backwards along the train, jumps onto the helicopter, blows it up, still inside the tunnel coming towards him, nearly gets decapitated by a helicopter blade, but doesn't and divorces Katie Holmes. <laughs> and then the train driver looks up at him as if to say, did you really just blow a helicopter up inside a train tunnel? That is so dangerous, Katie Holmes is too good for you. And Tom Cruise takes off his sunglasses and says, Mission Impossible? More like mission accomplished. And everyone from the Italian Renaissance just bursts into tears. Because they had never heard of Tom Cruise before. Nobody had. Da Vinci invented him too as a private joke. <laughs> you are really good at this whole Renaissance thing, Italian Shakespeare said to him, stunned and overwhelmed. But Da Vinci was so humble, he was just like, thanks, your friendship means a lot to me and then suggested they all move on to lay the foundations for capitalism and banking. At the end of the first day of the Italian Renaissance, Leonardo da Vinci walked home through the picturesque streets of his historical birthplace, and at the fading sunlight, which looked like an enormous fire burning somewhere very far away, which of course he knew astronomically it was, and all the black cats yawning hugely with their long dead mouths, and the flowers on the window sills completely fucking abundant with bees, and he thought with a happy tear in his eye, I wish I was still alive. Because, of course, he knew himself to be dead in the future. He was that brilliant. His intelligence was a blessing and a curse. He couldn't see the stars without spontaneously inventing a telescope. He couldn't stare directly into the sun without inventing a pair of tinted aviators. He couldn't look at a beautiful man without inventing a kiss directly onto his mouth. Leonardo spent the rest of his life inventing cool things and drawing famous paintings and even a picture of a guy with four arms and four legs rolling around inside a huge circle for medical students to put on their pencil cases in the future. <laughs> he looked up at the sky and he knew scientifically why it was blue, but it didn't stop him from thinking it was beautiful. And in later years when he died and went to heaven, God was like, don't tell the others, but you're the favorite of all my children, which made Jesus super mad. 
But Jesus didn't invent anything except for eternal life, and who wants that? Da Vinci didn't. He wanted to be a big pile of sad homosexual forever bones, so he said thanks, but no thanks, stole a mouse pad from Heaven's gift shop, and came back to us here on earth, where we still visit his bones to this day and say these were the bones of a great man. He wore them inside his body like a meat clothes hanger. He wore them like a wild horse wears the skeleton of the wind. He wore them towards the possibility of the future that he was inventing as he rode the horse of his own mind onwards, whispering the names of beautiful things to come, and in doing so, calling them forward into existence. He wore them like patience and was kind to all who knew him. Goodbye, Leonardo D.V., you extraordinary son of a bitch. Goodbye, goodbye. We love and miss you every day. this far ahead. <laughs> um, watching six seasons of The Nanny while my long-term relationship slowly fell apart. <clears throat> watching six seasons of The Nanny while my long-term relationship slowly fell apart was more self-inflicted boredom than nostalgia. As Maxwell chased Fran up and down the staircase with a frying pan, and I lay in bed, listening to the distant sound of trains pulling their shit for brains cargo through the dark. There are some months when all art feels worthless, and life feels thin and weak and full of spite, and the pastel hysteria of spring outside the window just makes me wince with disappointment and rage and the total mind-numbing futility of it all. Often I think about the man who walked straight into the National Gallery and punched a hole into a $10 million Monet painting of a sailboat drifting down a river of autumn leaves and got sent to prison for five years. There's nothing in this world more boring than heartbreak. It's like a tax audit of the soul. And what once seemed rare and poignant and full of emotional promise just makes me want to dose myself to the brim with horse tranquilizers and take a long vacation to Skeleton Town. There's only so much sitting by the window begging the moon for punishment you can take before you have to get mad and stride up and down the toiletries aisle of the local grocery store, wishing every old woman painstakingly reading the back of a Listerine bottle an expedient journey to hell. And all the poets he loved reveal themselves to be little bitches whose constant need to reupholster their pain just seems sad and extravagant, like grief factories polluting the local waterways with pathos and nuance. The present has overflowed and turned the whole past bad. Ancient Greece, Art Nouveau, the entire Italian Renaissance all ruined. Monet too, with his surfeit of water lilies wilting in the heat like a loose leaf salad. I sit like Nostradamus in my kingdom of disappointment, burning down the cities of the future, going through my calendar, listing all the bad things to come. Um, and then... This last poem I'm going to read is a love poem, just to, just to bring the... You you <laughs> yeah, me too. It, it's called Pyramid Scheme. <laughs> it, really, it really is a love poem, though. I mean, it is called Pyramid Scheme. It's maybe 50% about pyramid schemes and 50% a love poem. 
The other day, I was thinking about the term pyramid scheme and why they called it pyramid scheme and not triangle scheme. I asked you what you thought. You thought it added a certain gravitas and linked the idea of economic prosperity with some of history's greatest archaeological achievements, unconsciously suggesting a silent wealth of gold and heat. A triangle is two-dimensional and therefore a less striking mental image than the idea of a third dimension of financial fraud, which is how many dimensions of financial fraud the term pyramid scheme suggests. But I had to pause for a second at the financial fraud part because it occurred to me I didn't know what pyramid schemes really were. I knew they had something to do with people getting money for nothing. Maybe it's better to keep your money in a pyramid than a bank and I should shop around and compare the interest rates on different pyramids. Maybe I should open up a savings pyramid with a whole bunch of trapdoors and malarias to keep the financial anthropologists, I mean bankers, out, my emeralds cooling under the ground like beautiful woman's eyes. Sorry, I've lost the second page of my poem. Hey, I think this was supposed to be a metaphor for something, but I can't remember where I was going with it. And now it's been swept away by the winds of whatever. But knowing me, it was probably love. That great dark blue sex hope that keeps coming true. That cartoon black castle with a single bird flying over it. I don't know where this poem ends, how far below the sand, but it's still early evening and you and I are a little drunk. You answer the phone. You pour me a drink. I know you hate the domestic and poetry, but you should have thought of that before you asked me to move in with you. I used to think that arguments were the same as honesty. I used to think that screaming was the same as passion. I used to think that pain was meaningful. I no longer think pain is meaningful. I never learned anything good from being unhappy. I never learned anything good from being happy either. The way I feel about you has nothing to do with learning. It has nothing to do with anything, but I feel it down in the corners of my sarcophagus. I feel it in my sleep. Even when I'm not thinking about you, you are still pouring through my blood like fire through an abandoned hospital ward. These coins are getting heavy on my eyes. It has been a great honor and privilege to love you. It has been a great honor and privilege to eat cold pizza on your steps at dawn. Love is so stupid. It's like punching the sun and having a million gold coins rain down on you, which you don't even have to pay tax on because sun money is free money, and I'm pretty sure there are no laws about that. But I would pay tax because I believe that hospitals and education and the art should be publicly funded, even this poem. <laughs> when I look at you, my eyes are two identical neighborhood houses on fire. When I look at you, my eyes bulge out of my skull like a dog in a cartoon. When I am with you, an enormous silence descends on me, and I feel like I'm sinking into the deepest part of my life. We walk down the street with the grass blowing back and forth. I've never been so happy. Thanks very much. Brilliant, huh? Jesus. All right. I'm going to read some poems for you now. I hope you enjoy them as well. Um, <clears throat> I thought I'd start by reading, yeah, just a few from this book. It's called Plum, and it's my, my newest collection. And it's just, just a mix of poems written 
about being a kid and then being a teenager and then in my 20s and, and well, 30s, because I don't, I don't know anything more than that. Um, so I'll just do a bit of a whistle-stop tour of a one-from-each kind of era, I guess. But I thought I'd start off with this one um, because I was taught the phrase, the New Zealand phrase, to give a wristy yesterday um, at this very prestigious literature festival. This is the only sort of <laughs> colloquial term I've learned. Um, so I thought I'd start off with a poem about that. And it's, it's yeah, I'll just sort of whiz through them. And this, this is one that I wrote about, about being 14, although my mother keeps asking me to say it's about being 16, but it's not, it's about being 14. And, um, and it's when the, <laughs> when the first of my friends in our kind of group of friends at school wanted to, well, I'll use the New Zealand phrase, give her boyfriend a wristy, and she didn't know how to do it. So she asked us how to do it, and we didn't know how to do it either. So we went out and bought um, Just 17 magazine, which teaches young girls how to do things like that to boys. And um, so we read that you had to go up and down, so we sort of put all our knowledge together and told her how to do it. And so she did it, and um, her boyfriend, who was also a good friend of ours, Josh, ended up in hospital the next day. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so this is this is a, a short poem about that moment, and then I'll move swiftly on to being seventeen. <clears throat> it's called Yanking. <laughs> Apparently, up and down did not mean like a lever, like a <laughs> like a door handle, like a joystick, like a casino slot machine. It meant up and down, fingers curved around, gentle strokes from shaft to tip. We only learnt this after Rowena had tried the alternative yanking motion and almost snapped her boyfriend's dick. We gathered, listened, stroked her back, our impulse perfume shirts. We stroked her back in hidden prayer. Thank fuck she did it first. <laughs> right, moving on. Age. <laughs> Age 17 working in the photo department at Boots the Chemist. And this, I don't, I don't know if you've got Boots here, but it's just a big chemist, but it sells like shampoo and makeup. And it also has a, has a photo booth and a sort of cook shop area. Um, and I worked for a couple of years. I actually loved it. I worked in the um, photo department developing people's photographs. And it was obviously before there were any like digital cameras or camera phones or anything like that. And you had to actually take a photo and then take the spool to people like me and my friends who worked on a Saturday and, and hope that we didn't show your photos to everyone in the shop if they were interesting enough. Um, so this, this poem, I guess, is about one of the games that the weekend staff, who were mainly school kids, used to play on the, the more grown-up full-time staff that came in on Mondays in, in the photo department. And it's, it's a day that it kind of backfired and we weren't sure what to do. And then I'll, I'll go to 20s. When the rotor said photo, relief, cook shop was grim. Second floor, one till on your own all day. Three customers in six sodding hours, sometimes still you could not move from that till. Must look busy, Holly head up, look busy, Holly head up, look busy, giving not one shit. I had no fucking idea what those Brita filters did. The photo department was so much better. Instead of selling kettles, those Sundays were spent expectant as the negatives came to life on the conveyor belt. No customers on Sunday see just memories. Printed in reverse order, we watch them reborn. Willies were the best, of course. Close-up ones or sex shots. 
quietly, we discuss which photograph to place on top in the paper wallet for the people working weekdays. Imagined Maureen, Monday morning cheeks aflame as she made her way through the correct customer procedure. One, greet the customer. Two, ask the customer's surname. Three, collect the customer's photo wallet. Four, open the photo wallet and show the customer the top photograph. <laughs> Five, verify whether this is in fact their photograph. <laughs> Six, take the payment. Seven, thank the customer. That Sunday, a crowd had gathered round to see the dress. Wedding photos attracted almost as many staff foyers as sex, and she looked stunning. Gorgeous, bright, how lovely. Staff revived all smiling. Well, a cockshot always shocked, but this timing was atrocious. We questioned it at first, erupted more with each exposure. The photographs were always printed in reverse order. It went, the wedding night, the groom arrives, the bridesmaids get their makeup done. The groom, a tongue, some breasts, dark sky, mouth giving head, lips not his wife's. A taxi ride, his hand inside her open thigh, some blurry gropes, more shots, first round, the stags leave home. The bride collected first thing Monday, like a kid come to a sweetie shop. I still worry that we should have put a different photograph on top. Age 30, that's all right, I'll move on. All right, age 30, so this is... um. Yeah, I'll just do a few more from this book. This is a short poem I just wrote about friendship when I was about 30, and then I'll, I'll carry on. But um, yeah, I think I realized when I was turning 30 that most people I knew didn't, didn't really live near their friends anymore. A lot of them had moved in with a partner or they'd got married and moved away. Um, and I think a lot of us probably would have wanted to maybe live with their partner like 70% of the time and their friends 30 or 50-50 or 60-40 depending on how well you get on so this is called call on me we don't call on each other anymore we all live too far away and now impromptu visits worry you might interrupt my day you do not wake me up on weekends with screams pitched to my window glass do not ring my doorbell more than once politer now step off the mat now we must plan to meet in diaries, don't dance in PJs, share the bed. You do not comb my hair for hours to practice plaits, drink tea instead. I love you still, my friends. I count our meetings down like holidays, but dream each time the doorbell rings. It's you, just called to play. Age 32, hiccups. This is for my daughter. I'll do, I'll do a couple for my daughter. You had hiccups after pasta. You asked me to frighten you. I told you water is being packaged into plastic bottles every day, which in the millions are tossed away and floating into fright and seas that fishermen are fishing these instead of fishing diseased fish. You said, that is not the type of fear that helps get rid of hiccups. <laughs> and this is age 32. So yeah, I'll just read this one and then I'll, I'll read a few poems from Nobody Told Me. Um, this is a poem about our um, ex-prime minister who I was quite thankful to one day, and um, is David Cameron, who was a Conservative Prime Minister. Um, and yeah, I don't know about anybody else, but when I was pregnant, I had this, lots of different ideas of what sort of mother I would be. And one of the things that stuck in my head is that I imagined that by the time my daughter was at school, we'd sort of had these quite relaxed, like almost coffee mornings, getting ready for school. We'd sit and eat a croissant or something classy like that. Um, and I always imagined I'd have the newspaper out and I'd be telling her stories of what was going on in the world and she'd look at me and say, that, that's really interesting, Mum. Um, 
thanks for sharing your <laughs> global knowledge with me. And I'd be like, no problem, I love you. Um, but that's not what happens. And I try and tell her stories and she sort of sighs and walks away. But this one time when um, I read her the, the, <laughs> the English headline at the, of the paper, she stayed and asked me questions and we talked about it. So yeah, it's about that. And it's called A Dead Pig, I mean. And um, if you don't know the story, there was a story about how our prime minister, a lot of people do this in England, especially the ones that go to really posh schools. Um, he'd put his penis into a dead pig's mouth. It's just a thing that we do at parties. <laughs> uh, and I, I realized maybe I, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have read this story to a five-year-old child. And <laughs> a few people after gigs have told me that, a few sort of health practitioners and midwives. And I, I realize that now, but it, it was a mistake and I've, I've made many. <laughs> so yeah, a dead pig, I mean, for, for good old David Cameron. I watch your five-year-old brain grappling to understand what adults see as normal, because you don't yet know exactly how our social rules work. I read you the newspaper again today, told you how some say the Prime Minister, the Conservative one you ask, I nod, put his knob, I say Willie, of course, into a dead pig's mouth when he was younger. You stare at me, expression dropped silent for a moment, wondering whether that is as unusual as it seems. You check the facts with me, He's really mum, in a pig's mouth mum, a dead pig mum, I mean. You stare at me, then to the air, your mind collates the data. You investigate some more, clipboard, pen to paper. You question me again, ask with the cutest curiosity if it is better because the pig was dead, if it was hard to get his willy out, if I have ever put my fanny into a dead pig's mouth. <laughs> Not understanding if this new piece of news is just a game you don't yet know about, like Monopoly or Scrabble, just something adults do, like using different knives and forks and spoons when different classes come to tea, like killing turkeys every Christmas, like making posh food out of force-fed ducks, like watching horses run in circles, like shaving poodles into different shapes, like punching in somebody's head when one group of men kicking balls kick more balls in a net. We make dinner change the subject, build a cave house out of Lego blocks. Your dad comes back, kisses you, asks you how your school day was. You ignore his question, look at him, get your clipboard out, inquire if he has ever put his willy into a pig's mouth. <laughs> no, or a chicken's, or a sheep's. You list farmyards worth of options. Till it is clear from the consistency of negative responses that this is not a standard place for any private part to be. You correct yourself. Check one last time. A dead pig dad, I mean. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, I'm going to read um, yeah, a few poems from this book. And it's just uh, a, yeah, a collection of, of poems I wrote when I was, I was pregnant and becoming a, becoming a mum. So I'll... Start off with this one, I think. Yeah, this, this poem's called Wow, and um, I wrote it the first time my daughter saw herself in the mirror when she was about one, well, saw her body in the mirror. And um, when, I came, yeah, when I came back from the hospital, one of the first things that I did after giving birth was to take down the um, full-length mirrors in my flax. I was so fucking petrified of seeing my body in the mirror, which I'm embarrassed about now, but... Um, yeah, I wish I hadn't, but I did. And... Um, and then after about a year, I, I 
put a mirror up to see what an outfit looked like or something. And my daughter immediately like toddled up to the mirror and just started gawping at herself in the mirror. And I realized that, I don't know, maybe she didn't even think that she had a body because her stupid mother had taken down all the <laughs> full length mirrors. But she sort of stood there doing that bouncy thing, just staring at her butt and staring at her belly um, for a good half an hour. And, and then she started to applaud herself. So, yeah, I, I thought at that stage she's probably more intelligent than I am at, <laughs> at 26 when she's one. So I, I wrote this poem while my daughter was applauding her own backside in the mirror. Wow, my body is amazing. I can almost hear her saying it. As she stands naked at the mirror, hands clapping in applause to it. She's naked, bold and proud. Her mouth open wide and round like, wow. This body is amazing. She's one year old and loving it, big belly sticking out, thighs like mini tire towers. And when she looks at her reflection, she always shouts aloud like, wow, this body is so great. Gazing down now, I try to do the same. Ignore the plastic advert spreads that pass me on the way. I say my body is amazing, despite what some might say. I say my body is amazing, despite the claims you make. The nip and tuck and cuts and sucks that fill my walk to work each day. Enhancement ads and happiness will only come with curves this way. And if I lay in front of you today, clothes dropped to the floor, you'd prescribe me what I could have less of and what I should want more of. A tick box, what could be chopped off your red pen, ready hand aside, your eyes deciding what to slice from lips to cheek to bum to thighs. The lines below my eyes, you say, I ought to peel or pull away. My breasts will start to sag one day, that breastfed baby there to blame. She came into the world, you say that's great, but now behold your face, your saggy stomach, baggy eyes, stretch marks, skin, you look and sigh. My eyes tighten, my legs inject, my thighs cut back, my head perfect, my stomach flat and my breasts enhanced, don't smile too much, oh God, don't laugh. As you mark me, like a canvas page encircled bouts of red, I feel the need to tell you, you might praise my skin instead. Because as you chat about correction, you're plucking cuts and lasers, briefcase stuffed with time relapses, scalpel, lead erasers, I take up your red pen to my cheeks and mark two stripes on either side. A naked, painted warrior could be a sore sight for eyes, because I am ready for your battles now. My body's felt the worst. No scalpel cut intense as that last damn push of birth. And I have seen with awed amazement what a body brave can do. And now I'm marked like tribal tattoos with the tails my flesh went through. But those stripes that line my saggy stomach mark me like gold. And the folds below my eyes tell a tale just as bold. My laughter lines are getting deeper now because I smile twice as much. So if you palm read these first wrinkles, my life would light up. The official position is that smooth skin is queen, but without any lines, there's no reading between them. A storybook is opening. My life has just begun, and once upon never plays if I cling to line one as you try to cover the living I've done, as a human, a woman, and now as a mum. But your red pen can't rub out the nights I've not slept, the parts that I've bled or the laughter I've wept. The baby I held in a stomach that stretched, the breast that got heavy so baby was fed. The parties I've had out, the sleep I've missed out on, the dinners I've shoved down my throat like a python. As you pile on the pressure to cover my life, I wonder what the fuck is so wrong with your sight. If my mind and my memory can tell you my tales, then why can my body not tell them as well? As our babies stand naked, applauding their skin, I can't wait for their lives and their lines to begin. Thanks.
That's all right. I'll just read a couple more from this and then finish on, on two more. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll read a bit of an extract from this. So this is written when my daughter was six and a quarter months old, and it's just um, called Sex, basically. It is now over six months, and I'm still not really up for it. I'm starting to feel guilty. I feel like the two top erogenous zones in my body are now no longer erogenous, or at least not nearly as much as they were. Please just touch me somewhere else, anywhere else, just not there. Not my breasts and not my crotch. Neck, back, thighs, arms, shoulders, feet, any of them, anywhere else. And it's awkward. I hate telling him to get off, to not touch my boobs, but when they're dripping milk and sore and, well, I feel bad. He's so patient, but I'm sure it must be wearing. Weird for guys. Today you can, not today. Today not my boobs. Today don't touch anything. It's horrible, confusing. But I just need my body back and then I'll work it out again. At the six-week checkup after birth, the nurse looked between my legs and said I was healing. And then she said, you're okay to have sex again. You're okay to have sex again. And I thought, fuck you. <laughs> what, <laughs> what the nurse meant was, you can now insert a penis into your vagina without any negative post-birth related health effects. That does not mean I want to have sex. My vagina is okay, maybe, thank you for that. My head, no. And sex is not just a penis in a vagina, no matter what Victorian sex education or Hollywood still teaches us. Sometimes I think I'm overreacting about all this. Then, I think it would be like if a guy had his penis slowly inflated over a period of nine months, then bashed with a hammer for 30 hours <laughs> until it ripped, then it bled for eight weeks, his nipples swelled, cracked, became baby toys, and then on top of the pain and frustration, he felt constantly guilty for not really feeling in the mood. <laughs> well, every image from society told him how unsexy his new body and bashed penis was. But I do feel sorry for him, and I do feel guilty, because it's been a while now since I knew what was going on. We keep visiting a friend who tells me how horny she was when she was pregnant, and how she couldn't wait to get back to it after birth. Know what I mean, she says. I smile, and imagine beating her over the head with a wet fish. <laughs> my, my body is not my own anymore. It has hands on it all of the time, and the last thing I want is more hands on me when the baby's resting. But that's shit. I want his hands on me. I crave them too. I just want to sleep more. A woman told me their relationship became so awkward after having a kid that she made herself t-shirts so her husband can stop hanging around like a sensual criminal in the bedroom. There were three t-shirts which said, participatory, non-participatory, and no. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Breasts. <laughs> no one talks about this. They whispered round it. With taboo torchlights, we stumbled down it. I didn't read about it, and I read a lot. Like writer's block, we stop at breasts. A naked chest and my breaths are sick and they feed her. He feels them and my nerve endings quicken in panic. I'm trying to manage the two in one body. I've got two people each night and they're both wanting on me. As we sit down at six, she sips into calmness. My arms heat her belly and her lips sleep in laughter. Then after lights low, I hear Barry White melodies and step to the next room where he's waiting so patiently. From skin to skin baby to skin to skin man. From staring at innocence to staring at pants. And it's hard. It's so hard now to transfer position. From one room to the next in one dim lit partition. And I wish I could just split my body in two. One boob for sex and the other to feed through. And they make you feel sick and they make you feel strange. Friends asking questions like, when she's feeding, is the sensation the same? As her tiny hands tap at the skin on your breasts, of course, it's not the same as strokes felt in sex. And we stress that it's strange or it's weird or it's wrong when from lovely to lover, our bodies move on. 
and my brain took a long time to calm to the notion that my boyfriend's hands were not planned as imposing. So I lay her to sleep and I wipe off the milk and step into the next room for some innocent filth, in the middle of which her scream jolts me up and I transform breasts once more between lover and love. Um, but before I move on to two short ones from the next book, just to say I, I, um, yeah, I always put the, the time that I write my poems for some reason and about half an hour after that I read that poem again um, and I realised it was rubbish and it wasn't true. And just the, um, the wipe off the milk, for some reason I just rhymed filth with it as if I, I was all all right after that point. But I just really like rhyming. I know poetry doesn't have to rhyme, but I, I, I find it hard not to sometimes. So basically I just lied about what happened because I wanted to rhyme milk with something. And to, to be fair, filth doesn't even rhyme properly. It's, like, it's not even a full rhyme, so it was shite anyway. But, um, but I wrote Breast Part 2, which is longer and more moany, so I won't read it. But it's, it's the truth. It's like less rhymy, but it's more truthful. And what actually happened was that I sort of looked into my, my bedroom and I thought, if I get into, into that bed, then I'm going to get poked quite quickly. Um, yeah, so I didn't go in there. And then if I go into the other room, my daughter's going to like smell my boobs and like try and grab me as well. Um, so I just got a blanket and, and slept in the corridor between the two rooms. So it was fine. It was a, probably one of the best night's sleep I had for my whole motherhood. So anyway, I just wanted to tell you the truth. Thanks. I just do two short ones dedicated to my grandparents. So this is one um, I wrote for my grandma, who's 92 and likes to talk to me about sex an awful lot more than I would like to. Um, <laughs> I think, actually, I quite enjoy it, if I'm honest. Um, but this is, yeah, this is a poem I wrote because after talking about sex a lot, and in the last six years, she sort of asked me about blowjobs, the female orgasm, lesbians. She didn't think any of those were real things. Um, so she said to me a little while ago that she thinks actually now she's probably born in the wrong generation and if she'd been born today, she'd be a bit more kinky than she was sort of allowed to be. Um, and for her, sex was just something she legally had to do with like washing up and stuff. Not that she legally had to do that, but it was sort of on the same list. So she said to me, think about the things that turn you on because I never had that opportunity. Um, so this is a poem about things that turn me on that I wrote for my grandma. And... Um, <laughs> And it's, it's called Bricks, because I, like, I, like, I really like bricks a lot. As we all do, as we all do. Bricks turn me on sometimes. I don't know why, there's just something. When nobody's watching, sometimes I rub them. The roughness is lovely. I feel a bit funny even writing this down, but I love it. Bricks turn me on sometimes. When they're crumbly and old, cement chipped and derelict, I sometimes stand dreaming, staring at building site tips, wondering whether I could break that rubble into little bits in my hands and eat it. I get the same feeling with ice. I don't know why, but the feeling of ice turns me on sometimes. When it's left till the end of a drink, just on the verge of water, so when I bite the ice cubes, they melt gently in my jaws. I like to eat ice when I'm bored. I like to eat ice before I sleep or after sex sometimes. When I go to bowling alleys, I prefer the slush puppies without the cherry flavoring, just the crushed up ice. Thighs turn me on sometimes. Guys turn me on sometimes. Eyes turn me on sometimes, but it depends how they're watching me. I like to eat ice before I eat. When it snows, I sometimes sneak handfuls of that instead. Eating snow turns me on sometimes. Low tones whispered in my ear. Hot baths when no one else is near. Shower power, water sprays. My friends say that's a common one. Sometimes I feel sexiest when I'm the only one around. 
jumper sleeves, sitting halfway down a hand, doing things unplanned, staring at the sky, the stars turn me on sometimes. As the size of this universe blows my mind and I need to get that energy out of my skin when you touch me those nights, I start shivering. Whistling turns me on sometimes. Singing choir tones switched up so loud I feel like they're surrounding me. Music turns me on sometimes. Crying turns me on sometimes. Laughing turns me on sometimes. Wearing high heels turns me on sometimes. Wearing wellies turns me on sometimes. Wearing soft silky clothes. Talking with someone I don't really know. Watching your throat as you speak about something you know really well even if I could not care less. My head on your cold chest turns me on sometimes. When we're touching and I fart accidentally and we both start to laugh hysterically and the sexy time moment has passed and we were so very ready and we joke about how can we recapture sexy after that has happened that turns me on sometimes <laughs> trusting you completely turns me on so does eating pizza or any italian food to be fair hands in my hair and bricks crumbling derelict bricks so when I flick on the TV, it confuses me. As the same men and women's faces and bodies parade the stage and sexiness is explained the same way day after day after day. I think that sexiness is lame. I don't believe what you say. Sexiness is way more than those bodies, boobs and holes and dicks. Turn-ons are all different. I like ice and I love big, crumbly bricks. Thanks. Thanks. Right, this is my last one. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much for this jumper. I've never felt so sophisticated in my life, if I'm honest. <laughs> and thanks to Hira, it's been brilliant. Um, yeah, so this is Cherry Pie. It's a poem I wrote for um, my granddad, and it was the first time my mum did any home cooking, really. And um, she sort of made this cherry pie for my grandparents coming down from Scotland, and she sliced it on the table. And as soon as she sliced it, my granddad went to the toilet and vomited. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks for listening. Cherry pie. When my mum sliced the cherry pie on the table, my granddad ran off and threw up. I'm so sorry, Dad, Mum said. I'm so sorry I forgot. I was nine years old then, no idea what had happened, but when my papa came back, he explained. Two weeks of waiting on the shores of a war beach as rowing boats came to collect them, and the only thing there for the soldiers to eat were pre-packaged sweet syrup cherry tins. His mates were shot dead, the cherries were blood red, stench of rotting and sweet fruit he was gagging with each breath. He said, war is a sham, we had ice cream instead. He said, be kind, not revengeful, Holly, don't believe all you read, and don't eat cherries in syrup because that stuff rots your dreams. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Our two wonderful poets, that was really, really fantastic. And um, thank you all for coming along and attending today. And if you all, like me, want a bit more, <laughs> um, the girls are both signing books out the front at the UBS or something like that. So if you head out that way, you'll find them. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>